What's up, everybody? Chad Dundas here from the Co-Main Event Podcast. If you've been listening to the last few episodes of the show, you probably already know that this week is going to be unusual for us because Ben is traveling to Australia to cover UFC 243 for our employers over at The Athletic. At some point this week, if the MMA gods and the Australian internet will allow it, he and I are going to try to record a long-distance podcast uh, that we'll have up here at the regular CME feed, so keep your fingers crossed for that. As for right now, however, we've done a couple of things to try to tide you over. First of all, if you're already a patron of the podcast, we thank you, and we've gone ahead and made every episode of our ongoing Movie Club podcasts available to all levels of Patreon supporters for this week only. Um, so if you are one of the $1 or $5 level supporters, you can go over to the Patreon page and check those out. If you like what you hear, you might even want to upgrade yourself to the $10 level so that you can continue to listen to those Movie Club podcasts as they come out once every two weeks. And hey, if you are not yet a Patreon supporter, that's okay. We get it. Everybody engages with the show on their own terms. And frankly, we thank you for even listening. What we're going to do uh, for this Monday is go ahead and make our latest episode of The Movie Club, wherein we discuss the award-winning 1991 thriller Silence of the Lambs, available for free to everyone right now. In fact, you are already listening to it, so sit back and enjoy that. Over at the Patreon page right now, our latest Friday Power Hour podcast is also available for free and for everyone. On that one, we discussed uh, the UFC parent company Endeavor's canceled IPO from last week. And of course, we did everybody's favorite, co-main event podcast Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. So if you're hard up for MMA talk, head over to patreon.com slash co-main event and check that out for free. Hopefully we will talk to you guys later this week. I hope that works out. Okay, that's it. That's all I got. Sit back, enjoy the Movie Club podcast about Silence of the Lambs. What's up, everybody? Welcome in to another installment of the co-main event podcast, Patreon Movie Club. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks, as always, where this week we're going to be talking about 1991's Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme, screenplay by Ted Talley, based on the novel of the same name by Thomas Harris, one of, I believe, three movies all time to sweep the top, what are considered the top five awards at the Academy Awards the year that it came out. Silence of the Lambs triumphed over Tender Mercies in the uh, last week's vote, a fairly lopsided vote in favor of Silence of the Lambs. I think that Ben and I uh, both enjoyed watching Silence of the Lambs. I will say this, though. I kind of hope Tender Mercies comes back. I think you'll probably not be disappointed. It's just to hear your uh, your description of it, the the stuff that I read online, Tender Mercy seems like an interesting movie. I would not be at all opposed to watching it. So we are allowed to bring back movies for future votes in the movie club. Hopefully the Tender Mercies makes another appearance, although next week, as we already announced during the live chat this week, it's going to be another listener-generated fan vote 
and we already have our three finalists. You want to tell the people what those are? I might have already forgotten. Brick. Brick is one. Sorcerer. Sorcerer. 1977 Sorcerer, which seems like maybe a, a crazy-ass thrill ride from what I was able to see on the on the internet. You seem really excited about that possibility. It piqued my interest. I got to be honest with you. When I looked at the trailers available on IMDb and then the final movie, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. So those are the three movies that are going to be up for vote. This week for the movie club, and of course we will record that episode a couple of weeks from today. Ben, let's start here. You know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. Wow. It's still a cutting line. That's only the beginning of a paragraph-long monologue by uh, Hannibal Lecter to Clarice Starling. I believe the first time that they meet... Let's, for starters, maybe, why don't you say what it is that made you pick this one? Because I feel like one of the interesting things about this to me was, seems like everybody in the world has seen Silence of the Lambs by now. One of those movies that feels like it's just always sort of on cable TV somewhere, if you want to sit through all the commercials and the editing and whatnot. And I wondered, before going back to rewatch this one, is it even possible to see it anymore? To just see it as the movie that it is? Because it's been parodied so much. It's been copied, you know, never as successfully. But after that, it seemed like movies again fell in love, as they'll do time to time with the serial killer or like the hyper-intelligent evil villain serial killer kind of idea of Hannibal Lecter. And just scene for scene was parodied to such a great extent that I wondered if you'd be able to just kind of see the forest for the trees there. I was kind of surprised at the extent to which you can still enjoy it. What made you decide, though, that you wanted to watch this one? Uh, Silence of the Lambs was a major touchstone for me as a kid. I went to see it in the theater, I remember, which would have made me about 13 years old. And in retrospect, pretty surprised that my parents would take me to see this movie in the theater as a as a young person. But the two books, Silence of the Lambs and, and its precursor, Red Dragon, by Thomas Harris, I think were pretty influential in shaping my own tastes and like maybe shaping the kind of writer slash artist that I turned out to be as an adult. And I was interested to circle back, you know, at 41 years old and rewatch Silence of the Lambs to see if it still held up, to see how it struck me. Uh, like I said, before we started recording even though it is like ubiquitously on television all the time, I'm not sure that I have sat down and watched Silence of the Lambs all the way through with with uh, considerable focus since the 90s. So I did want to revisit it and see how it seemed to me and, uh, you know, how enjoyable it was and, and if I could pick out like what I what grabbed me about it as a as a kid. And I thought that when you posed that question, is it possible to even watch Silence of the Lambs just as the movie that it was in the early 90s, because it has been so influential and it has inspired so many cultural memes, I guess you would say, uh, that I was also interested in that aspect of it. And above and beyond that, as a film for the movie club, I thought that it gave us a lot of different avenues for discussion, because you can talk about the movie itself, you can talk about... Uh, the nature of the Hannibal Lecter character and Anthony Hopkins's portrayal of him. You can talk about Jodie Foster's turn as Clarice Starling and some of the work that the movie is doing uh, about her and about gender roles 
And I think that you can also talk about Thomas Harris, who's like an interesting author character kind of a guy. And then I think in addition to that, you can talk about what ended up happening to both the the Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling characters as the series of books that Thomas Harris wrote kind of went on and on. And I guess I should say now, probably going to be doing some spoilers for those uh, later books. So if you haven't either seen the movies or read the continuing exploits of Hannibal Lecter, the Thomas Harris books, you may want to be warned. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. But basically, I thought it like it was one of my favorite movies from the early 90s, and I wanted to see you know, how it would seem through our eyes in 2019. And I think like you, I was pleasantly surprised that it held up, that it seems like almost like a surprisingly amazing movie to me to watch it as an adult. Like I really appreciated a lot of things about it that maybe I didn't even appreciate as a kid. Uh, So I was really pleased and pleasantly surprised with how it turned out. Yeah, I did end up, when I went back and watched it for this, Felt like, man, there are just some really great touches here from an editing perspective, from a structure perspective. One of the things I really like about the way the movie is structured that I think gives it this feeling of really rapid movement is the kind of false climaxes that it has. Where it feels like you're nearing the end of this chase a lot sooner than you actually are. With, okay, hey, we got the guy's name, we're going after the guy, no, we don't actually have the guy's name, that kind of thing. And that I think gives it this feeling like, oh shit, I would just my expectations as a moviegoer, I expected this to be drawn out a lot more. And they give you, they dangle this lure in front of you, like, oh no, we're, we're nearing a resolution to this, even though we're not. And that makes the, the last act of the movie a lot faster paced than it could have otherwise been. If you, just based on what you expect of the, crime thriller, we're after our guy, we're going to get our guy eventually kind of thing. I also, I really enjoyed when going back and watching it this time, what they do with the Buffalo Bill character. It's kind of like what Steven Spielberg does with the shark in Jaws, that for a long time in the movie, you don't really get a whole lot of great looks at him. He's this presence that is a, a major force in the narrative, and yet it's 31 minutes in before we cut from the perspective of Clarice and that whole situation to even see what Buffalo Bill is up to. He's just been referred to on the screen. We've never seen him. It's just been a thing that's going on. And then 30 minutes into the damn film, we cut to the senator's daughter singing Tom Petty, having a great time driving down the road as an American girl in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. And... Even then, when we see him, we, we see things from his perspective. We see him watching, and we get this little look at him in a dim light as he has got this cast on his hand to try to... A, a Ted Bundy move, by yeah. the way, uh, to trick her. Like, oh, I seem so helpless. So you want to help me out here, so you, you go and you help me put the sofa in the van. Lesson here, never help anybody. That's right. I hope we all got that. Um, and even then, we don't get a great look at him. And so when you finally get to that... I don't want to say iconic, but memorable scene at the end where he is dancing for the camera and doing a little tuck job on himself, which, by the way, in the trivia I read, said that that was the suggestion of Ted Levine, the the actor who plays Buffalo Bill, that it wasn't in the original screenplay, but he insisted that it was a necessary near-the-end kind of film look at 
who the character is and who he sees himself as. And you're like, whoa, that was for 1991. That was some pretty edgy shit. Yeah. But before that, he's just kind of this monster that you never feel like you get a good fix on, which makes him scarier. I agree. And I think some of that is also true of the Hannibal Lecter character, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. It's kind of like a a standard move of Thomas Harris in these early suspense thrillers that he wrote to sort of uh, deny the reader that information. He, He does almost the same thing in Red Dragon to my memory, that the two books are actually pretty similarly structured in that a lot of them are from a close third-person point of view of the serial killer, the person who's being sought in these stories, but that it takes a while for you to get there and and to understand that person and what they're doing. And it does kind of heighten the suspense uh, and the, the, the anticipation to find out exactly what's going on. I would say that I was struck upon re-watching this by a lot of the craft of the filmmaking itself. And it really made me realize, even though I guess I sort of knew this as a, uh, as a point, but maybe I didn't fully appreciate it in a real concrete way of how influential silence of the lambs would go on to be, you know, to other movies like this that came out in the future. My wife and I just watched, we've watched both seasons now of the Netflix show mind Hunter, which is, fairly critically acclaimed and about FBI profilers and based on a book uh, written by an FBI profiler, kind of about the genesis of the behavioral science unit in the FBI. And just watching Silence of the Lambs, I was like, this looks and feels exactly like what David Fincher does in Mindhunter from like a camera work perspective, from like a color palette perspective, from like a, a kind of like almost understated feeling of the whole thing all the way through. It's like you go back and watch Silence of the Lambs and it's clear that Jonathan Demme and uh, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins are kind of like cutting the pattern. No pun intended, considering some of the subject matter here. Wow. But they are like, wow. okay. they are setting up the archetype for what will become the modern thriller style, like the serial killer pursuit movie. So it was interesting to me to go back and watch it as an adult, just to kind of uh, take in some of that craft. I really appreciated on this watch what I hadn't really noticed before how often the Jodie Foster character is like front and center, but like never quite looking at the camera. Whereas a bunch of the other characters are talking directly to the camera, which uh, is a really deft and frankly tricky directorial move to, to sucker the audience into Clarice Starling's point of view. There was just a bunch of really little things like that, that as an adult, I noticed, whereas as a child, I don't think I was really appreciating it on that level. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about it because I read, I went back and read both uh, Roger Ebert's original review, which you know, I'm going to read a Roger Ebert review on anything that came out when he was still alive. And then he wrote something uh, maybe 10 years later after the film came out to just go back and revisit a like a thing he did where hey what what made these good movies still good years later and he does a really good job of talking about the way the movie uses perspective uh, to kind of put you in Clarice Starling situation where all these there's a few of these scenes especially like when she's at the funeral home and the the FBI guy what's the dude's name Talking about Crawford. Jack, Jack, Crawford. Jack Crawford. Her boss? Yeah. He 
takes a sheriff aside and as a ruse, basically, it's like, oh, I don't want to talk about this in front of the woman. And then she's left standing there with all these other sheriff's department officers. And it really makes a point of showing them all staring at her by showing them staring directly at the camera and showing it from her perspective that she's the shorter woman in the group and they're all a bunch of tall men all kind of standing looking disdainfully down at her. And then when it cuts to her, she's looking off to the side, not looking directly at the camera. And he also makes a point of maybe one of her her bravest moments that we see prior to her going in there and confronting Buffalo Bill is when she has to tell all the sheriff's department dudes to get out of the room yeah. in the, the morgue. And you're like, yeah, that is kind of a ballsy moment for her where she's like, go on now. Yeah, we, we appreciate what you've done, but we have to do some things for her. Go on now. And they do. They all move out of there. And it, it does that at several different points. I mean, like at the very end confrontation there where we're seeing her, her terror in the dark, fumbling around blindly in the dark. And we're seeing it from Buffalo Bill's perspective. A lot of this movie, it does. I don't want to say a revolutionary job of what it's doing with its female protagonist here, but at the time, yeah, I feel like you did not see a whole lot of uh, this kind of stuff going on in movies. Yeah, it does it really, really early in the movie. One of the first shots is, you know, after she gets summoned from her run through the assault course at, at Quantico, uh, she gets on the elevator. And it's like the elevator is full of a bunch of tall male FBI agents, and she's like the only woman in the elevator. So like from a really early... Uh, point in the movie, it sets Clarice Starling in these rooms full of men where she has to take control and kind of stand out. That just that really brief scene where she looks through the divider in the morgue and there's a funeral going on, like at the funeral home, and you see the weird, tacky, like 70s era wallpaper, and there's the guy playing the organ, and he kind of looks right at her and sees her, and you're seeing all of this and stuff. He's also like the medical examiner, somehow, yeah. right? You see it all from Clarice Starling's point of view, and then it does the tracking shot through the the funeral to the to the casket, where you get into one of the flashback scenes of her as a child. That really short scene kind of particularly struck me this time as being like well, this is how every movie like this is done now. That, like, you get that kind of, like, bizarre imagery, like, creepy, uh, small-town desolation feeling that you get in uh, the first season of True Detective and, like, some of the uh, weird uh, imagery of, like, a movie like Seven. Like, all of it is in that scene of kind of, like, just making you feel unsettled as the yes. audience. Just being like, it gives you this feeling where you're like, okay, like we're not in Kansas anymore. Like you are in this small town in this world where anything could happen, kind of. One of the things that really struck me going back and watching this was when the first time we see Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. Because uh, also, as Ebert points out in one of the reviews, that it makes it so that both to get to Lecter and to get to Buffalo Bill, she has to descend into this sort of underworld, like down yeah. these steps into these sort of layers. Which, by the way, though, the construction of Buffalo Bill's lair, legit all-time great creepy-ass serial killer lair. Yeah. He got himself a hell of a fucking murderer lair Absolutely. down there. Absolutely, 100%. His business up top. 
in case anybody comes by. But then you go down there and it's like even when we, we see it in glimpses earlier on where he's got like the moths flying around and shit. And you're like, okay, it's super creepy in here. But you don't even know the extent of it. Yeah. Like when she is wandering around there looking for him, it's like open up a door. Oh, here's just like a body in a bathtub yeah. full of gross shit. There's like Mrs. Littman. Yeah. Apparently. Uh you didn't even know that was happening. That's been here the whole time. I really appreciated that aspect of it. Watching the movie this time was the like long sort of like tracking shot following Jodie Foster through Buffalo Bill's lair where you get to see all of the shit that is in his house right down to the detail of like a bunch of Polaroids on the wall of him with strippers, <laughs> which I had like never noticed as a child. But now I'm just like whoever dressed this set. Ought to have also gotten an Academy Award. I hope they did, uh, because that's that's just amazing. And apparently they're keeping Hannibal Lecter in Arkham Insane Asylum in Gotham City yeah. or something, because that's a goddamn castle. Like yeah. that's the dungeon of a castle yes. that they're keeping those guys in. Well, the scene though when we first see him is, for one thing. It's jarring because she's walking down this row of cells with bars on them and things like that. Gets semen thrown in, uh, in her face later on when she's leaving, and somehow though her hair looks immaculate. The next time we see her step out, it's good for the body. Good for the yeah, body I, and I the don't, hair. I don't think it gives it a shine. I think you're you're wrong about that. But she goes past all these bars of these cells that are like dark, dingy dungeon kind of looking things, and then comes to Hannibal Lecter's, and he's got glass. It's well lit, and he is standing there in the middle as if just waiting for her. And I want to read you a little bit of Roger Ebert's original review in 1991 because he does a good job capturing this. He stands perfectly still in the middle of his cell floor, arms at his sides, and we sense instantly that he is not standing at attention. He is standing at rest, like a savage animal confident of the brutality coiled up inside him. His speaking voice has the precision of a man so arrogant he can barely be bothered to address the sloppy intelligence of the ordinary person. The effect of this scene is so powerful that it underlies all the rest of the movie, lending terror to scenes that do not even involve him. Which is true, because he, screen time-wise, Anthony Hopkins is not really in this very much. I think I read that he is maybe in second place for winning a uh, an Academy Award, a Best Actor Academy Award, with the least screen time. There's only one person who has won it with less screen time than Hannibal Lecter actually has in this. But that first scene, it's such a jarring switch to go from these dungeon-like cells to his creepily immaculate thing where he is standing there with these wide eyes, just not blinking, looking at you like a a mouse is being dropped into the cage of a, of a snake. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all agree that Jack Crawford should immediately be fired for gross negligence, <laughs> right? Okay. Given, given what we come to understand about the Hannibal Lecter character, the full uh, monstrousness of the Hannibal Lecter character, in retrospect, you realize, wait a second, this dude, Jack Crawford, sent FBI trainee yes. Clarice Starling to go meet with this dude, uh, basically because she was the prettiest woman he could find at the FBI, and he figured that she will titillate Hannibal Lecter in some way, both physically uh, and, I think, intellectually. Like, you should be fired. Yeah, that was one of the weaker points, plot-wise, that I stumbled across a few times in this rewatch because she's not even an FBI agent. And you're telling me the guy just went on a search for who is somebody who seems enough like interesting prey 
that Hannibal Lecter would not be able to resist her. Yep. And then it turns out Hannibal Lecter just personally knows the killer who we're looking for here. So that's, that's a little a, bit of a stretch. That's a lucky break for us. And also makes me wonder about the just the sheer uh, geography of what's happening in this movie. Yeah. Because Buffalo Bill is living in Ohio at the end of this thing. He captures Catherine Martin, the daughter of the senator, in Tennessee, and yet he allegedly was the murderer of Hannibal Lecter's former psychology patient in Baltimore. This dude gets around. Yeah. He is killing motherfuckers all over the country yeah. for a guy who doesn't seem to have a, a considerable uh, stable of wealth at his control. It doesn't seem like Buffalo Bill's jet-setting all over the country to... Uh, abduct and murder people. Well, that's one of the things making him difficult to capture is after killing the first person who he was known to him in his town, then he goes further afield to get the other people. So that like desperately random, the assortment of the, the bodies, I think is one of the things that Hannibal Lecter says at one point. I also wondered about that because she goes to see Hannibal Lecter, has this initial interaction with him. He throws her a bone with this, like look for this storage unit basically. And, but it's like she reports back the, I can't tell if she physically went back to Quantico or if she's just talking to them on the phone. The guy seems to be listening to or reading a transcript of her conversation with Lecter earlier that day. And she's like, oh yeah, no, I thought about it. And so I looked up and there's a storage unit in Baltimore. She goes to the storage unit and then is back at the Arkham Insane Asylum later that same night. So there is a little bit of that that I, I stumbled upon. And also I just kept asking myself, did this guy really comb through the FBI ranks just just looking for these specific traits? And then wouldn't it seem like once he had used her to kind of get some hooks in Lecter, wouldn't she probably have been elbowed out of the process as all the FBI dudes were like, okay, trainee, we'll take it from here? Yeah, most likely. But again, I mean, I can suspend that much disbelief, I suppose. The One of the questions I kept returning to is, who the fuck is this guy who owns this storage unit? Like this guy with the bowler hat and the accent who has a driver. Uh huh. Who is this guy? I want a spinoff movie about that guy. Discretion is very important to his clients. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah, the guy's got a head in there. You better believe it's it's important. So I wanted to talk about essentially three pivotal scenes in Silence of the Lambs. One of which we just talked about for a minute. Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling initially meet in the the basement holding cell of this. Uh, facility where he is being kept. The second pivotal scene is the scene where he escapes from captivity during a, a fairly iconic uh, escape scene at this point. And then the last scene, obviously, Clarice Star Starling confronts Buffalo Bill at his house. So let's talk about Hannibal Lecter's daring escape from captivity. Daring escape. Because these phrase. motherfuckers only have two guards watching this guy. I mean, they got a building full of cops, yeah. but only two of them have eyes on Hannibal Lecter, which strikes me as a bad plan, man. People keep underestimating Hannibal Lecter. Which at this point seems unlikely. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe they, they felt like, hey, we got him up on the fifth floor and we got the lobby filled with motherfuckers with machine guns. So he's not going anywhere. They, they, maybe they think even if he does find a way to deal with basically the two sleepy henchmen up there dealing with him on a minute to minute level, he's got to get past all of us and there's no way it's going to happen, which, okay, fine. 
the thing that I love about that scene or like the whole sequence of the daring escape, like you said, it's easy to focus on the, you know, he's got the pen. He's going to use that to get out of the cuffs. And it's a really scary moment when he latches on the cuffs as the guy reaches down to pick up that tray. Yeah. And you realize, oh, man, Lecter's really in charge here. But the first of all. When he is laying there, and maybe this is just because I already have seen the movie by this point and I know what's happening, but when he's laying there with the other guy's face on his face, yeah. essentially, I'm going, is that not supposed to look like Anthony Hopkins? Because it looks like Anthony Hopkins to me. It does not seem like it would have fooled anybody at the time, but maybe you dress him up in the uniform, everybody's really freaking out over what's happening, fine. The great editing job they do is when he is in the ambulance and... There's an opportunity there, I think, to stay with that scene too long and to try to do too much with it. Because they do a, kind of a legitimately beautiful job when he kills these guards in yeah. this holding cell. And you get that, you get the, the menace from Hannibal Lecter that up until this point in the film has only been discussed or referenced. We've yeah, never seen is, it. This is the first time we see him in action in a lot of ways. Yeah. The first time we see him reveal his his monstrousness, his evil. And one of the things that is amazing to me about the Hannibal Lecter character and the, especially the way it comes off in this movie is he's likable. Yeah, and I he, think that's one of the, the true keys to like the the enduring nature of the Hannibal Lecter character is that he is the bad guy but is he really? I mean, yes, he is. He's yeah. a monster. He's an absolute monster. But how do they achieve this making him likable? Is it just that he likes Clarice, our main character? He he shows her some respect and he recognizes her intelligence. And everybody else is looking down at Clarice a little bit and going, oh, okay, here, trainee woman, whatever. And he is the person that seems like recognizes her intelligence and her ability and respects her for it. And is that itself the thing that makes him likable? Because, I mean, he is helping out in this murder, I guess you could say, in this investigation. But he could just at any time tell you who the dude is. And he yeah. doesn't. He does not really seem interested in actually helping to be of help. How do they make it so that he is feels like a somewhat likable character who you also still are deeply unsettled by. Yeah. So this might be a good time for us to d d dissect the Hannibal Lecter character a little bit, just in terms of it's staying power in the consciousness of, of our uh, popular culture and like kind of how the Hannibal Lecter character works before we go on. Shout out to Charles Napier noted character actor, Charles Napier as Lieutenant Boyle in that scene who gets bludgeoned to death with the, uh, with the, the nightstick. Yeah, that's it's, terrible. It's terrifying. Yeah, but like you look at that scene and you're like, oh yeah, I've seen this guy play a cop in like 80 movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So shout out to that. But the Hannibal Lecter character, as you said, he's not in this movie very much. 24 minutes and 52 seconds. The second shortest uh, screen time for anybody who goes on to win an Academy Award for Best Actor. Part of Hannibal Lecter's appeal, I will uh, put forth right now, and we can talk about it a little bit more at length in a minute, is that he's not in the movie very much. So it creates this mystique around Hannibal Lecter. He's also a character that I think works better in a supporting role, frankly. Like, this movie is about Hannibal Lecter, 
But it's not really about Hannibal Lecter. It's actually about the FBI's search for Buffalo Bill. He's not the main thrust of the narrative here. He's allowed to kind of be on the sidelines and occupy this position in our mind as a supporting character that I think makes him even a little bit more effective than he would be if he was then if he was like the main character of this movie. Uh, and I think one of the things that makes him scary and I think also makes him a little bit likable is that in many ways, Hannibal Lecter seems like the opposite of crazy. He seems like so meticulous, so calculated, so intelligent that it's easy to kind of admire the things that he does, even if some of those things that he does are terrible. I think that's like one of the keys to why he became such an iconic character in the landscape of American film and, frankly, the landscape of American literature is because we as as the audience, I think, can admire his abilities, even though what he's doing is is patently evil. And it's one of the reasons why that scene where he escapes is so terrifying and also so arresting, because that's the first time that we see Hannibal Lecter pull back the mask, literally and figuratively, <laughs> as like, oh, he's this evil monster. Like, he's not just a guy uh, saying riddles to Clarice Starling, he's going to beat a guy to death with a nightstick and then cut off his partner's face and wear that face. Uh, and that you're right, that scene in the ambulance where he pulls off the Lieutenant Pembry mask and it's revealed that that is actually Hannibal Lecter, still pretty scary, even as an adult. Yeah, well, and the way they cut from there where, you know, the driver is basically getting the news, wait a minute. Yeah, this isn't what we thought. And then Hannibal Lecter is right there behind him with blood on his face. Yeah. And we're like, oh shit. But then we just cut right out of there. And man, you, you, it's worse, scarier you filling in the blanks there after you've seen what he did in the holding cell to the other two cops, especially how calm he was about it. And that thing where he takes out the knife and is like, no, I'm ready when you are kind of thing. And you're like, wow, this, this guy is absolutely horrifying. Right. And all of that is magnified because you, because it's unseen. Like you said, it's like it leaves it up to your imagination, just as the Hannibal Electric character itself leaves a lot up to your imagination. And that in turn only makes him scarier. And I think also we got to give a nod for sure to Anthony Hopkins's portrayal of Hannibal Lecter. Not the first guy to play Hannibal Lecter in a movie because the, uh, the movie Manhunter, which was based on Red Dragon, the book that came out before Silence of the Lambs, also includes the Hannibal Lecter character, but played by co-main event podcast favorite Brian Cox right. in that movie. But Hannibal, like Anthony Hopkins is the guy, obviously, who takes the Hannibal Lecter character and makes it, according to some people, the top villain character in the history of film by what he is able to do with his portrayal. Yeah, and... Uh, a lot of other people, it seemed, were considered for this role. And apparently from what I read, Anthony Hopkins kind of considered this his last shot at breaking out big in Hollywood. He was doing a lot of stage acting in England and, you know, had obviously been in some movies and stuff. It felt like he wasn't really making the progress he wanted to make. And it said later that he felt like, OK, I'll do this one. And if it doesn't really work for me, then I'm going to forget Hollywood and I'm just going to be a stage actor. And that uh, Jonathan Demme apparently wanted him after seeing him in a stage production of The Elephant Man as like the, you know, the kindly doctor in The Elephant Man. And apparently one of the conversations they had was when he told him, you know, I want you 
because I saw you in that, I think that you could be a good Hannibal Lecter. And Anthony Hopkins supposedly said something along the lines of, but why would that make you think of this? Because the doctor in that is a good man. And Jonathan Dem is supposed to have replied, so is Hannibal Lecter. He's just trapped in an insane mind. And the way they wanted to build him as this hyper-intelligent character who feels like he knows everything. Feels like he has the just incredible powers of perception, superhuman powers of perception, but is also batshit insane and is not really even gonna grapple with that too much on his own. It's just like feels like he, it's almost as if he thinks he is so smart that he is living beyond the bounds of society's rules and doesn't doesn't worry about it at all. Doesn't doesn't even really seem bothered by his current situation of being incarcerated too much. Yeah, I think saying that he lives outside of the laws of of the human species is probably the right way to put it and that he has made peace with that and appears to have zero uh moments of doubt about that being his particular lifestyle. Uh, I like what Anthony Hopkins does with his eyes in this movie. It's like one of the well-known bits of trivia that he almost never blinks. Yeah. So he is like really intently, he's doing crazy eyes. Let's just say that. Like yeah. really intently staring directly into the camera in a lot of these scenes. Reptilian is one way I heard it described. And that he does, that does give off the, uh, more of a menace. Like he does seem just like a snake waiting to be fed yeah. kind of in, in a lot of these scenes. Uh, I also think, though, that it's really impressive to get us to feel like at once like we you want to see Hannibal Lecter get away. Kind of you want him out there in the world. It's just more interesting if Hannibal Lecter gets away than if he's in a cage for the entire movie. And yet you feel so deeply unsettled by him when you actually are seeing him. at time. Yeah. He's charming and yet also you wouldn't want to be in a room alone with him. And even I read something about Thomas Harris, the author here, saying that uh, writing about Hannibal Lecter and that he would got to a point where maybe he didn't want to do it anymore, write about Hannibal Lecter, but he still felt like he was not totally sure that Lecter, the character, couldn't see him. <laughs> well, Which that's is, just some creepy shit. That's creepy. And like one of the things that Anthony Hopkins does so well to make the Hannibal Lecter character iconic is that he does these great swings between this refined elegance that he is able to bring to the portrayal uh, to then at the, the turn of a dime to be this super creepy, terrifying force. Like he does that thing where he, uh, he tells Jodie Foster that he, <laughs> he can tell that she wears this one particular brand of perfume Yes. But not today. Not today. So he's, so you immediately, you're like, oh, okay. Well, this guy, as you said, has superhuman powers of perception and he's able to like, you know, tell, tell a delightful anecdote and seem very charming. And then he does that weird slithering hiss when he talks about how he ate the census taker's liver with lima beans and a nice Chianti. Supposedly just ad-libbed on his part. Also ad-libbed, uh, I, from what I read, him mocking Jodie Foster's accent. And her reaction was supposedly authentic, that she, she felt a little bit offended by what he was doing there. So I think that you had like the perfect storm of factors here, both like a well-written, perfectly handled villain slash anti-hero character in Hannibal Lecter. And then you bring this brilliant 
Anthony Hopkins portrayal to it and you get the resulting sensation that, that Hannibal Lecter became, uh, Let's talk about the, the, essentially the last scene in this movie, the protracted killing of Buffalo Bill and, uh, Clarice Starling's determining that he's in fact the killer. She is able to go in there and save, uh, Catherine Martin, uh, even though at the time when she says, I'm the FBI and you're going to be okay and I'm going to get you out of here, we as the audience are like, I don't know about that, man. I love the, the exchange she has. With the girl in the well, basically. Yeah. Because it is not a triumphant moment by any means at that point. And when she's like, okay, I've got to leave this room. Uh, just sit tight and try to shut the dog up. And the, the girl in the well replies, don't leave me, you fucking bitch. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I love the direction they went with this. Because it could have been really kind of stock savior. Hey, I'm here. Everything's going to be okay. Oh, thank goodness. You know, and then she leaves, whatever. But the the interaction they have here feels so much more raw and awkward and hammers home for you the fact that you're like, okay, yeah, Clarice Starling, really smart, figured all this shit out and uh, has been our protagonist. But then in this moment, you're reminded, oh, yeah, still still kind of a cadet here. Still not really been in this situation where she got to get the gun out. We've already seen her fuck up once in training when she gets in a, in a scenario with the gun out. And so it really sets you up for this thing where you feel the the terror on her behalf that she feels overmatched and then and then the lights go out and you're like well shit yeah also playing uh buffalo bill with that night vision goggles so 90s man yeah early oh, yeah. 90s we're, we're gonna we're, bust out the cutting edge technology of the night vision goggles yeah. to make our monster seem even scarier he's got night vision goggles unbeatable unbeatable nod to both brooke smith as Catherine Martin and Ted Levine as James Gum, both of whom do an amazing job in this movie. Uh, and the scene where he answers the door, like all the way up to the point where Starling sees the moth in his house and realizes, holy shit, this is the dude. And now I'm going to throw down. Like, I'm not going to go call for backup. Heaven forbid. Like, I'm going to whip my gun out and we're going to do this thing for real. Uh, that seems amazing. That is amazing. All the way through the, like, the cutting back and forth between Buffalo Bill putting his makeup on and, like, putting all his jewelry on. And he's listening to that awesome 90s new wave kind of, like, Joy Division style jam that he's got on. I love that song. And the FBI is closing in on this house, which we later find out is, you know, a long ways away. Okay. About that. Is that dishonest editing? Because they're doing a thing where they're showing the FBI closing in on the house, pushing the the doorbell. And then we hear the doorbell ring in Buffalo Bill's house where he has set it up for an alarm so that he can hear it even if he's down in the dungeon, his lair, his serial killer lair. Then cut back to these guys surrounding the house getting ready to kick it in. He's coming up. It's going back and forth in a way to directly suggest that it is the same place. And then when you see that it's not you open the door like they kick in the door there's nobody there and then he opens the door and it's Clarice there and you're like this is dishonest yeah what you've done here but it moves so quickly and it's fun and it's revealed quickly enough that it kind of feels like you don't mind it's certainly emotionally manipulative yeah but at the same time like so much of the thriller genre is based on what you might consider uh dishonest either narration or editing or uh, withholding of information from the audience. Like basically the, the genre is built on those foundations. So like, I think that it's handled so adeptly in the actual movie that to me, it's just like, it's just a cool scene rather than, uh, 
you know, overly manipulative, even though when you think back on it later and they're like cutting back and forth between the doorbell ringing and stuff like that, you're like, well, that was a little bit over the top. Uh, but though that whole thing, it's the whole, like, what is it gotta be 10 or 15 minute, uh, emotional and literal climax of this movie is it's gotta be an all timer. It's got to be yeah. like one of the all-time greats in all of movies. Well, it also, though, it did make me wonder, because there's a lot of patting themselves on the back and being like, all right, we got him. We know who he is. We're going after the guy. Don't you worry. We got this one solved, and here we come. And I'm going, is this supposed to make her safer, the, the girl in the well? Because it seems to me like you guys publicized that we're really, we got this whole situation figured out. And we know who Buffalo Bill is and we're closing in on him now. He might see that on TV and decide, whoa, let me quit kill this girl and get out of here and yeah. maybe start my project over somewhere else. Yeah, well, it's, it's Chilton that puts it out in yeah. the news. Well, Chilton, we Villain. go out of our way to make Chilton seem just like a terrible, sleazy doctor type. Yeah. Uh, and again, you get to see Ted Levine bust out his weird uh, Buffalo Bill voice in that scene, which is... Not even totally sure what's going on there yeah. with the voice. Well, I love what he does where he's he's supposed to be getting the card for the woman's son or something. Like, oh, I got a card. You want to come in here? She's looking around. She sees the the tailoring stuff, the, the moth thing, everything. She puts it all together. We see she puts it all together. Um, and he is kind of realizing maybe something is up here the way she's acting. And she pulls the gun on him and he's holding all the cards. And she's like, turn around, put your hands on your head. And he holds his hands up with the cards and then just kind of like lets them fall as he turns and runs out of the room. You're like, just physically what he's doing with his body there is really amazing. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of like amazing physical body stuff that 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 guy does in this movie. Also, I think like kind of important to draw a line between Buffalo Bill and Hannibal Lecter because we talked a few minutes ago about Hannibal Lecter appears to have zero qualms about what he's about. He seems to fully understand it and just be like, well, I'm a sociopathic, psychopathic murderer. And it's just kind of my thing, and it's what I do. Buffalo Bill, you see him having some doubts in this movie, although very briefly, when he's talking to Catherine Martin and she's down in the well, and she's kind of like telling him uh, all about herself and who she is, like he starts to, it's during the... uh she puts the lotion in the, it puts the lotion it in the basket the scene, which yeah. obviously is one of the uh, cultural memes that Sanibel or that Silence of the Lambs inspired. But like, you can see him get a little bit choked up there. Like he's confronting his own evil and like what he's going to do to this additional human being. Whereas Hamill Lecter never has that moment. Well, and it ties in well with that earlier scene where we see the senator on TV while the FBI cadets are watching and Jodie Foster and her friend roommate, whatever, they're both talking about what they're seeing there and the the friend character makes that observation that she's being really smart here like she keeps going the senator keeps going out of her way to be like hey you have all the power we see how strong you are let's also why don't you also show us that you can be merciful and like keep saying her daughter's name trying to get him to see her as a person and then when you do see that scene later on where he keeps referring to her as it and in giving her instructions and only speaks to her directly when he loses his composure a little bit as she's trying to delay. You're like, okay, yeah, they are doing a pretty good job. It seems like they took a real interest in the psychology of serial killers. And from what I read, they worked, the FBI worked with them very directly on this to help them understand, okay, here's, 
here's what we've learned about serial killers and here's how we go about some of these behavioral profiles and things like that. Apparently, one of the only things that the FBI people objected to uh, because they didn't feel it was accurate was Cadet Clarice Starling going alone to this house to check up on these these leads, basically, that a cadet would never be given this assignment to go do that alone. And the director was like, yeah, she kind of has to, though, because it's the emotional climax of the film and we need for Clarice to single-handedly save the day here. And they're like, fine, but it's super inaccurate. And he was like, I can live with that. Okay, nerds. Yes. Uh, so we get this, as we talked about, like amazing scene setter, basically, where Clarice Starling goes into the horror movie house where Buffalo Bill lives, and we see a, a an entirely more fully realized uh, picture of his house than we have gotten to see previous to this. Uh, you get to see all of these different horrific scenes in his house, including the skin suit. That he is making. Yeah. Including mm-hmm. the dead old lady in the bathroom, who, as I said, I assume could only be Mrs. Littman, who he's taking this house over for. Uh, you get to see the like labyrinth that is his basement and like the relative squalor that he lives in and all this stuff. And then just when you think it's scary, the lights go out. Yeah. Which is again, like this whole movie is kind of these like, Okay, we're gonna we're turning up the volume a little bit, and then we're gonna have it on three for a while, and then we're gonna turn it up again. It's like these uh plateaus, elevating plateaus of action and suspense that when you get to the end, he shuts off the lights, he goes unstoppable night vision goggles killer guy. You have turned it up to eleven yeah. at that point. And you really do it gives you a great sense of the terror that she's feeling in that moment when you're watching her just having no idea that he's right there and she's fumbling around in the darkness. And I like though that, you know, the way that she gets out of it is she hears the hammer cock on his gun. She turns around and fires and kills him. And it's not the long drawn out death of the villain that we get used to in other movies where, Oh, it seems like you get him once, but you don't quite get him. He comes back. Then you got to get him again. He gets a few different chances at it. This one Shoots him and he just lays there spitting up blood and then he's dead and Clarice has done it. I like that they did not feel the need to stretch that out. They knew that they had done enough at that point. Yeah. Is the handling of Buffalo Bill's sexuality, it's kind of early 90s. It's a little bit problematic via 2019 eyes. I mean, I wondered about that too. If people would feel like, hey, is this unfair to... To the, to the whole community here to have this killer be like, I am killing people because of my sexuality, essentially. But they yeah. do have that line earlier on where Lecter says, where she asks, she uses the word transvestite, I believe, also early 90s. He's like, so Buffalo Bill's a transvestite. And he says he thinks he is, but he's not. And that, she, and he recommends checking the hospitals that do sexual reassignment surgery saying that there's only three of them at the time and that I wouldn't be surprised if he had applied and been denied that basically he is funneling whatever weird psychological stuff is going on with him through this outlet, but it is not the real thing. It is not the actual thing that this is about. He just thinks it is. Yeah. So here's where we leave this silence of the lambs. Clarice Starling is going to graduate from the FBI Academy there's going to be an FBI cake, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. She gets a phone call from Hannibal Lecter, who has slipped the net 
slipped out of the uh, the dragnet here looking for him, left the country, appears to be in some Caribbean nation where he is going to, uh, we are led to believe, kill and eat Frederick Chilton, who must have realized, my the jig is up for me. I better get out of here. Why, though? Why would he flee to a Caribbean nation, assuming that that's where we are? I mean, why wouldn't he feel like, Man, the thing to do is to hunker down here in America with a bunch of armed guards. Like, wouldn't you be putting yourself more in peril by by fleeing? Maybe, maybe. But I think that Chilton's attitude would probably be like Hannibal Lecter knows who I am. He essentially knows where I live. He's so smart that no matter of of protection is going to be enough. Maybe my best chance is to just completely disappear. Of course, Hannibal Lecter is also too smart for that, and we have no idea how he was able to make all those connections and be in the place where Chilton shows up before he gets there. But that's, that's where we're at. We Hannibal Lecter gets away at the end of this thing, despite the fact that uh, Buffalo Bill is, is killed. Clarice graduates from the Academy. Lecter says the world is more interesting with you in it. So I'm not going to come have a visit right. with you. I hope that you will extend the same courtesy to me. One of the primary Factors in how this movie treats Hannibal Lecter and how Hannibal Lecter goes on to be regarded later is that he gets away yeah. at the end. Well, and one of the things that they do to salvage his likability after we've seen the monster in action is that scene where she's talking to her roommate where about like, hey, Hannibal Lecter is on the loose. And Clarice immediately says, no, he won't come after me. Uh, he would consider it rude. He's like, I can't explain it, but he would consider it rude. And you, the audience... Agree with her in that moment, just based on what we've seen. You're like, yeah, that would be tacky. Like he wouldn't, (laughs) Hannibal Lecter wouldn't do that. And so then when he makes that call where he's like, hey, I won't come looking for you. Don't you come looking for me. We can leave each other alone in this great big world. And she says, you know, I can't do that. And it made me wonder, would Hannibal Lecter and that's, does he respect the honesty? Because he would have to know based on his incredible powers of perception that FBI agent always gets her man Clarice Starling is not going to be like okay deal. Yeah. I'll let you I'll let you go, you let me go and that way we don't have to stay up nights worrying about whether one of us is coming for the other one. She's not going to agree to that deal. If she did agree to the deal, she would just be lying. Yeah. Is that did he know that that was going to be the outcome there? Well, he just wants to call her up cuz he's got a crush on her. People will say we're in love. That's right. There's one of the major parts of this movie is the creepy-ass, smoldering sexual tension between Jodie Foster and these two much older dudes, both uh, Hannibal Lecter and her boss, Jack Crawford. Like, it's not an accident in this movie that we go extreme close-up on the handshake at the end between Crawford and Starling. And we also get the close-up of Hannibal Lecter, like, creepily stroking her finger as he hands over the, uh, the case file right before he escapes from from uh, his holding cell there. Um, that's probably as good a segue as any to talk about what happens later to all of these characters. Thomas Harris, the notoriously reclusive author of these books, he'd written one novel previous to this called Black Sunday about a terrorist attack on the Super Bowl, uh, which I think they made into a movie, but it was not like a big hit as a book until after... Uh, Hannibal Lecter did what he did to hand to Thomas Harris's fame, but he writes Red Dragon in 1981, 
which as I said once before was, you know, written before a lot of the modern behavioral science work and investigation into serial killers had really even been publicized. And yet it's kind of remarkable how much Thomas Harris is able to nail about the psychology of, of uh, serial killers and mass murderers. And in 1988, he writes Silence of the Lambs, 1991. They make it into a movie. Obviously, it wins Best Picture. Anthony Hopkins wins Best Actor. Jonathan Demme wins Best Director. Uh, Jodie Foster wins Best Act Best Actress. And it becomes a fucking worldwide sensation. And as you learned by reading the recent New York Times interview with Thomas Harris, one of the few that's ever been done with him, because like I said, he kind of eschewed all media throughout all this stuff. Maybe he was planning to leave Hannibal Lecter alone at that point, but the grinding gears of the publishing and movie industry weren't trying to hear that. Yeah. Uh, this New York Times thing, by the way, it was just from May, so it is fa- fairly recent. Also, I want to point out that the title of this thing is Hannibal Lecter's Creator Cooks Up Something New. He has like a new book that he's talking about in this one, No Fava Beans or Chianti, and it's the first non uh, Hannibal Lecter book that he's written in many years. And I saw the article and I was looking at his face and this picture of him. And then I scrolled down to the caption, which said, fans have wondered for years how Thomas Harris shown cradling a rescued possum named Bruce comes up with his characters. And I had to scroll back up and be like, wait a minute. Is he holding God damn it. He is holding a possum in this picture. I don't know if I thought it was just holding a cat or a dog. I just blew right past it. Starting to get a picture of Thomas Harris yeah. here. Maybe mm-hmm. not a, uh, Standard dude. Maybe he has some eccentricities, you might say. Yeah. Uh, he talked about the how the especially Hannibal Rising came to be because he said that uh, he wasn't particularly interested. In, and for one thing, he also said for a long time, didn't watch Silence of the Lambs. Uh, he didn't really. He was. He had been disappointed by Manhunter, the 1986 adaptation of Red Dragon, the one that Brian Cox plays uh, mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter in, and was, quote, sort of down on the movies. Then one night he turned on the TV and saw, as will happen, Silence of the Lambs is on cable. And he said the dialogue was very familiar, so I sat down and watched it, and it was a wonderful movie. Yes, it is. Um, and later on, but as the franchise grew, fans began to tire of the cannibal. Hannibal Rising was a commercial and critical disappointment. The producer, Dino De Laurentiis, who adapted Hannibal Rising, told Entertainment Weekly that Harris hadn't been interested in a prequel and only agreed after De Laurentiis told Harris that he owned the character rights and that he would get someone else to do it if Harris said no. Harris, so basically they were like, we'll do this with or without yes. you. Harris doesn't entirely dispute this account, but recasts it as cordial persuasion by De Laurentiis, who died in 2010. Quote, he did have continuation rights to the character and could have done whatever he wanted to, Harris says. He had a lot of enthusiasm for a movie, and it was contagious, I suppose. So I've read all these books. Of course you have. I've seen all these movies, because like I said, this was kind of my shit as a younger person. Hannibal came out in 1999. Hannibal Rising came out in 2006. They did a remake. Well, they made Red Dragon into a movie, uh, not necessarily a remake of Manhunter, but uh, like a a, a modern reboot, I guess you could say, of of Red Dragon. Hannibal the book and Hannibal Rising and the ensuing movies are fucking bad. They're all bad. They are not good. And one of the primary lessons that I take from all of this is that you can ruin your character – and ruin the legacy of that character 
by doing too much. And remember, we talked about Hannibal Lecter. Why is he scary? He's not in the movie very much. It leaves a lot up to our imaginations. It's not explained at all why he is the way he is. He just is. Right. Well, there's that scene where one of the cops asks about Hannibal Lecter. At least I, I read it as him asking about Hannibal Lecter. Where he asks Starling, is it true he's some kind of vampire? And she says, they don't have a word for what he is. Yeah. And the uh, kind of oblique mentions to his past life as a psychiatrist and the the way just imagining him walking around the world seeing patients deciding who to murder and who not is such a weird thing to even picture that just by planting that seed and then not returning to it the movie sends you off on this kind of weird imaginative snowball yeah Hannibal and Hannibal Rising do so much unfortunate stuff to try to explain Hannibal Lecter to try to like fill in his background as a child and build this case for why he turned out the way he does. It tries to give you a mechanism for how he has this photographic memory. It tries to give you all of this stuff. And frankly, it casts Hannibal Lecter as the main character of these two books. And like I said before, once you are the full-on protagonist slash antagonist, you have to carry a lot more narrative weight than you do if you're just cool guy Hannibal Lecter who shoots in every now and then to tell Clarice Starling a riddle and do something creepy. Like, right. Once you are the main character, you just have a lot more uh, stuff you have to shoulder as as far as being a character in the book. And, man, it doesn't work. And I hope you can tell even now it makes me mad yeah, to think about I can, it. I can tell how mad you are. Especially Hannibal, seeing that movie, you could really tell that after Silence of the Lambs, they were like, well... We gotta kick it up a few more notches to get people to still be into Hannibal Lecter, because otherwise we've we've seen him already do some shit. We need to see him go, and we need it to be more graphic. And so, instead of making it unsettling the way Silence of the Lambs is and the way he is in that in that movie, they make it just gory and like the scene where he is serving up Ray Liotta's brains yeah. in Hannibal, and you're like, man, this stuff was so much cooler and scarier when it was just a thing referred to that he had done and that he will do again. Yeah. That kind of thing. When you actually show when us they it. they say, here's what he did to the nurse. Right. But they don't show they don't us show the us picture. That. Uh, him referencing having eaten the census taker's liver, that kind of thing. When you actually show it, it veers into like a comic book. And it doesn't feel, it feels just almost ridiculous more than scary. And it seems like you're relying on shock factor more on a psychologically troubling character you've created. I also don't, though, think that it's not just the other stuff that was done with the Hannibal character in this series that uh, maybe hurts our appreciation of just how great the character is in Silence of the Lambs. It's how many other people tried to create a character like this once they saw how awesome it worked in yeah. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Well, we talked about when we did Heat, there's one scene in Heat. Where like they all of a sudden we're at a forensic crime scene investigation and there's a female crime tech that's like, we got a serial killer yeah. on our hands, boss. And it's like, that's fucking Silence of the Lambs. Like, also, Ted Levine's in that one, too. Nice. Uh, we sh- I, I want to point out in fairness that there's a much later Hannibal television series that did three seasons where Mads Mikkelsen plays Hannibal Lecter. That that's not I, a real person. Mads Mikkelsen? It's uh, two S's. In the name. So. See, that's a soccer player for Liverpool. You know or where something. he's from. Uh, 
they got great reviews. I haven't seen it. Really? So, uh, but, but people say that it, it's really good. I'm going to, I hope that I'm remembering this correctly. And this is spoiler alert. If you haven't read the Thomas Harris books and you want to, and you don't want to know what happens at the end, turn this shit off now. <laughs> right now. But the movie, Hannibal Rising, and the book, Hannibal Rising, have different endings. And the movie, I think, actually handles it a little bit more uh, adeptly, a little bit more artistically than the book, where I'm not, I'm not going to remember this correctly, so I'm sure someone will correct me, but I believe Hannibal Lecter cuts off his own hand at the end of the movie. Because uh, he's handcuffed to Clarice. Yeah, his two choices are kill Clarice Starling or do something else to get away. So he cuts off his own hand to escape. Which, you know, considering what we know about these two characters, it actually kind of works. The end of the book, if I am remembering it correctly, he kidnaps Clarice Starling. And there is a lengthy, lengthy kind of like coda or falling action where he basically keeps her in some lair drugged for a long, long period of time. And then we are led to believe at the end that through that process, they fall in love and that Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling live as a couple no. in high society. I no. believe somewhere in South America, just kind of like being together. No. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? <laughs> uh, I, I like this quote from Harris's literary agent, Morton Janklow, um, who said he saw signs of fan fatigue with the character uh, by the end. Quote, the audience had had enough of it. He had exhausted the character. As my grandmother used to say, too much is plenty. Yeah. Too much of Hannibal Lecter proved to be plenty. It's a shame, but uh, I don't know. I can't really blame people for making the decisions they made, given what the circumstances were. I can see how somebody's like, hey, we'll fuck with your character. Uh, we got the rights. So there's nothing you can do to stop us. Or you could make some money and uh, do it yourself. And maybe you think that you could do a better job. And you probably do. And you talk yourself into it. Yeah. And I mean, it's uh, it's definitely a uh, – it's like such a hard position to be in as, a, as an author or as an artist, right? To have made all this money off this character, the uh, – the temptation must be so great to go back and revisit the character, not only because of its earlier success, but because of the money that you made off of it. There's more money to be had. There's more uh, fame, even though it doesn't seem like Thomas Harris is interested in that exactly. But like, it must be so hard to just leave it alone. Yeah. It's like you see the same thing in Star Wars where they made those terrible movies where they tried to explain how the force worked. I mean, and we were all just like, no, man. We didn't want to know how the Force works. Hey, we also didn't want Chuck Liddell to come back and try to fight Tito Ortiz when he's 48 goddamn years old, but nobody can walk away when they're supposed to. So maybe it's it goes beyond more than one industry. A um, couple things I wanted to note here before we, we finish up here, uh, looking at my notes. Well, for one thing, you mentioned how we get the backstory that involves Clarice being uh, being sent to Montana and then growing up a lot of the time in an orphanage in Bozeman. Uh, apparently, 
they were planning to do some flashback scenes where they show Clarice, I don't know, picking up the lamb and making a run for it in Montana. And then when they saw the actual on-screen, I don't know if chemistry is the right word, but dynamic between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins when they're talking in the insane asylum, basically telling the story about her life in Montana. When they cut, uh, the director just said, well, I guess we're not going to Montana. Yeah. Like it was unnecessary at that point after watching it. Um, also, I, uh, I was keeping my notes here as a, as the movie's going on and I, I may have been enjoying a couple few soda pops and whatnot. I would expect nothing less from you because my last entry here in my notes, which by the way, I use the notes app. I took it to notes took for it this to notes. shit. And my last entry, that kind of one of the near final scenes after she has taken out Buffalo Bill and the FBI agents are swarming all over the house. Which, by the way, I love that we see the senator's daughter being led out of the house and she's still holding the dog. Like, as if we're led to believe, like, she and this dog, it's going to be her dog now. Yeah, she gets to keep the dog. <laughs> that that dog was, is evidence. That she was willing to, to murder just a few minutes before. Um, but as you see the FBI agents swarming all over the place, and my last note reads... FBI be wearing some damn, damn trench coats. That's some early 90s shit. Every FBI agent out here in a trench coat cinched at the waist. That's See, how you know they're clean-cut FBI types. My last note says, hell yeah, FBI cake. <laughs> also, uh, a weird note that I read in reading the trivia. After working with former FBI agent John Edward Douglas for some time, Scott Glenn, the actor, uh, thanked him and said how fascinating it was to have been allowed into his world. Douglas laughed and told Glenn that if he really wanted to get into his world, he should listen to an audio tape of serial killers Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris torturing, raping, and murdering two teenage girls. Glenn listened to less than one minute of the tape and has said since that he feels a lost sense of innocence in doing so and that he has never been able to forget what he heard. Ouch. That's one of the things you read and I go, my mind goes two places. One, wait, this tape is probably available somewhere on the internet. Somewhere on a dark corner of the internet, you could probably find and access this. And then the next place it goes is, but you never, ever want to. Yeah. Don't even think about doing it. Yeah. Because you'll wish you hadn't. Anyway, guys, that wraps up our discussion about Silence of the Lambs. Remember, the next co-main event podcast, Patreon Movie Club, will be a vote between listener-generated submissions. You've got Sonny Weathers sending in the movie Raising Arizona. You've got Cursed Five sending in the movie Sorcerer. And you've got Matthew Liming, who put forward the movie Brick. So we will get the voting between those three films up later today. Be sure to get over to the Patreon page and vote for the one that you want to watch and you want us to talk about. But as for right now, we're done. 